The Handyman Method by Nick Cutter and Andrew F. Sullivan is on sale now. When a young family moves into an unfinished development community, cracks begin to emerge in both their new residence and their lives as a mysterious online DIY instructor delivers dark subliminal suggestions about how to handle any problem around the house. The trials of home improvement, destructive insecurities, and haunted house horror all collide in this thrilling story perfect for fans of Nick Cutter's bestsellers, The Troop and The Deep. For fans of Black Mirror and Amityville Horror, this is a chilling story of domestic terror. Richard Chismar, best-selling author of Chasing the Boogeyman, says the handyman method is, quote, nightmare territory. Cutter and Sullivan have created a modern masterpiece. The Handyman Method by Nick Cutter and Andrew F. Sullivan is available now wherever books are sold. And that leaves the Fangoria House ad to me. Are we ready for it? Let's focus. Let's get calm, centered, mm-hmm. and get ready to hear about our loving and benevolent overlords over at Fangoria. Tell them. You know Fangoria. They've been at it for over 40 years, and they are back and better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and is delivered right to your front door four times a year. Each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including from time to time your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, never online, so if you want to join in on the fun, you will need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. KingCast listeners are in the family, so I got a nifty promo code for you. You'll never guess it. That's right. The code is KingCast. If you use the code KingCast to check out, you will save yourself a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice! He's gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Folks, our guest today needs no introduction, frankly. He's been on the show a bazillion times. You know him, you love him. Writer-director Mike Flanagan is here today. Uh, say hello, Mike. Hello. Welcome back. We're very oh excited God. to have you. I'm thrilled, as always, to be here. What uh, What have you been up to? I, I think the last time we saw you was in L.A. back in December for uh, yeah. that season's screamings thing. Or Oh, yeah. I think that's what it was called. The History yeah, yeah, of the yeah. Shining panel. Um, some months have passed. A lot has happened. What have uh, How have you been filling your time? Well, you know, uh, it was a very busy spring. Um, we were in post on on my last Netflix show, so we were jamming on that. And then mm-hmm. I, I've been like so many of us, you know, right at the right at the crux of this huge seismic shift in the industry. And I, I've been on strike since since May first. Mm. So yeah, yeah. You um, it was announced that you're doing Life of Chuck. That's a new thing since uh, since we last talked to you. And yeah, yeah. um. Yeah. I guess the uh, you already had the script written by the time the strike happened, though. So yeah, you know, we we, we had that we had that buttoned up before the strike began, um, and you know, with with the uh, with the climate being the way it is, there is a lot of encouragement um, from the unions to support independent projects, like truly independent projects mm-hmm. that are completely unaffiliated with the AMPTP. 
Um, and you know, we would, we would fall very, very cleanly into that category. So, you know, uh, still, still have high hopes for life of Chuck and, and, and we'll see how it goes. Somebody reminded me that when we did the banger in Bangor in Maine, uh, that you mentioned on our panel that, that life of Chuck would be something you would love to adapt. Did you already know at that point? No, that, that you, no, that I, you I, 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 believe it or not, I had no idea. Um, I, I had asked about it when it was first published, and back then we were talking about uh, the Dark Tower with with Steve, and I had said, "Oh, by the way, Life of Chuck. I think if I got to do that, it would be the best movie I may ever make." Mm. Um, and he doesn't like to give the same person more than one property uh, right. at a time, which makes enormous sense. He doesn't he doesn't want him to just get stalled. And he said, well, you know, let's let's focus on on the Dark Tower, which is, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> um, and uh, and so we did. And and Towers just it's such a juggernaut to get moving. You know, it, it's like an oil tanker that, you know, earlier this year, uh, you know, long after after we were in Bangor, uh, I think it was in early February. I was talking to him just about the strategy for the next year and the timetable that we appeared to be on for, for tower. And, and I just asked, Hey, what, whatever happened to life of Chuck? And he's like, Oh, you know, someone else had it for a minute, didn't do anything with it. It came back, you know? And, and I was like, well, once again, I'd like to reiterate that I, I think that would be the best movie I'll ever make. And, and he was like, Oh, sure. You know what? Go for it. Like, we, we have time. Um, and, and I just, I just seized on it. Like I hit, that was on a Friday and I think I sent him the script Monday morning. Oh, come on. No, I, I stayed up all weekend, like in a, in a, in a marathon, just writing. Wow. Holy Christ. Yeah. And just That's like a it Rocky's off. level story. But you actually had it and you actually did it. Yeah. It, 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 it had been so clearly in my head and there's so much about what's on the page that just works. Like a huge amount of my job is just moving text over from the book. to the script. <laughs> yeah. um, But, you know, and I sent it to Steve and, and he had a similar thing where he's like, there's no way you did this over the weekend. And I was like, yeah, I did. Um, and, and he loved it. So we're, you know, we, we were good to go. And I, I hope, I hope we get to do it. I, um, but I had no idea uh, when we were on the panel. Um, it's just, it's just legitimately been one of my favorite of his stories. I, I just love it. And so the movie to me was like this weird little dream that I was like, no one in their right mind would ever make this. Like no studio right. would make it. And now I'm, I'm living in an industry where the studios can't make anything. Right. And I'm like, Hey, let's, <laughs> who wants life to check let's, now? Let's, let's, let's do it ourselves then. Uh, right. yeah. yeah. But yeah, so so we'll see. I'm 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 very optimistic on on all fronts, but I, I tend to be I tend to be optimistic. So it's a it's a very strange story, Life of Chuck. Yeah, and um, would not be uh, the first thing I would think of to adapt. Um, sure, almost uh, like I I'm having trouble even imagining what that movie plays like. But uh, also, if someone's gonna do it, it ought to be you. <laughs> Because you know you've you've pulled off miracles twice before in this in this particular realm, so uh, I'm excited for it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it it's not an obvious one, um, which you might have noticed are some of my favorite projects. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's the kind of movie like I just I, I put the book down and I was crying and joyful 
about it. And, and I was like, I, I'm glad this story exists. And the movie is like, I want to make the movie because I want the movie to exist in the world for my kids when they get older. It's like, it's that for me. Um, that's awesome. It's, it's about, you know, it's the least commercial thing I could ever make, which uh, <laughs> is driving my producing partner just crazy. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> especially when you say on yeah. a big podcast this is a least commercial movie. I know. it's like this is just it's yeah he's gonna love hearing about this but yeah it's um <laughs> but can you just pretend it's so, commercial uh yeah before we get started on our our topic today which is of course dolores claiborne um we will be pilloried if we do not ask you uh yeah. about a certain other project and of course i'm talking about follow the house of usher Oh yes, well of course. I'm just um, kidding. What's going on with Dark Tower? <laughs> I was, I was you, you got me. I was like, really? Um, okay. Well, sure. Uh, no, Dark Tower. You know, uh, I feel really good about where we are. Um, mm-hmm. Oddly, you know, where we are at the moment is completely frozen because of the strike. So right. you know, uh, but you know, we had a wonderful spring with it, and and we're making enormous progress on the project and. I have every reason to believe that on the other side of the strike, um, it's going to be priority one. And I think we, we have great partners on it that I can't talk about. And we have some really exciting uh, actors circling it that I can't talk about. <laughs> and we, we have some like really potentially groundbreaking approaches to the filmmaking of it that I also just can't talk about. So there's a bunch of stuff that very frustratingly for all of your listeners, I can't talk about. Um, but what I can say is that, you know, my, my fears that any momentum we had developed was going to be obliterated. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't worry about that. I, I think we're, we're in a healthy place and, you know, we're, we're, of course, in solidarity with WJ and with SAG. And once those more immediate needs are taken care of and, and everyone's back to work, you know, I, I think that's where I'm going to immediately deployed. So uh, I think that's great, but it's, it's going Very well. And I'm not sitting here crying in my, in my spin drift. So, and this is going to air on crackle. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it's going to, it's, um, yeah, Quibby. is Quibi still around? Because this is gonna—we're gonna bring it back. Um, Groundbreaking way to tell the Dark Tower. Five-minute chunks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, this show's gonna go on for four hundred years. Yeah, I mean the tower itself is is vertical, so it makes sense to mm-hmm. watch it on your phone. <laughs> perfect, um, but perfect. yeah, yeah. Well, all of that is is very exciting stuff, and we're we're of course. Uh, very eager to to uh well to learn more and, and to uh i don't i i don't know it's exciting <laughs> shit i don't know yeah, what else yeah. to say sure yeah yeah because they're we're the overwhelming response that we've gotten uh just as like a stephen king podcast to the news of you you know not only having the rights, but like going out there and actively trying to get this made soon has been like ecstatic, perfect person to do it. We trust Mike, you know, and Flanagan, we trust all that stuff. Uh, and then like a subtext of, but we've been hurt before. Don't promise us something right. and then don't give it to us. So, you know, that that's been kind of the, the double-edged sword of, of all this. And I know that, you know, that it's going to go a long way for you saying, you know, you coming out and saying like, listen, we're not in a bad spot. We're not like, 
We're not like dog paddling, you know, just kind of keeping our head above water. It's like, you know, the fact that you're that you're confident that post strike that the momentum hasn't been lost, I think, is going to assuage a lot of fears. So I'm I'm really happy to hear that for me personally and also for for the, the listener base who I know are just chomping at the bit for any like bit of news because that all that does is, is show that like proof of life, you know, that this is, of course. Happen, you know? And look, I mean, no one, no one will be more heartbroken on the planet uh, than me at this, at this point, if, if it doesn't <laughs> come together. So I know the, the, we've been hurt before feeling intimately well. And, um, and yeah, I promise no one, no one will be more devastated um, to be this far down the path on it and not, get there i don't know how i'd bounce back at this point so um so yeah but but i i hope everyone can take heart you know in the meantime though you know it's it's critical i think that you know the the energy that's behind the now two kind of historic strikes you know be supported and 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 respected and you know i'm i'm a member of both wga and sag so i'm actually double on strike right now which means you guys none of you can can you don't know you know you can't look forward to the next amazing performance by mike flanagan <laughs> yes um in a piece of filmed entertainment I, I really fact, yeah you can say sigh um, incognito is not on the table at the moment exactly <laughs> right. um you know and boy that really has the the uh the studio shaking in their boots <laughs> i know it's good <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was that signature, you know, like right above Meryl Streep's that like really pushed it over. So, oh, yeah. They're like, wait, whoa, whoa. no more. No more Flanagan performances. What are we going to do? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's we're it trying is, to film another Gladiator movie. How the fuck are we going to pass this thing now? <laughs> uh, it, it really it really is a, a very kind of important time for our business yeah. and for the future of the business. And, and so. You know, I, I appreciate, as always, you know, the, the voices of solidarity that, that I've seen for, for the WJ and for SAG. And I understand that it's impossible to predict such things, but like, yeah. do you, is there any sense of how long this might go on for? Or is it really just like, there you know, you're in it. I'm just an observer. Yeah, so it, is it just like, we have no fucking clue. We have no fucking clue. It's, it, it'll go on until the AMPTP comes back ready to seriously negotiate it'll go right. on that long and and you know how long that is is really up to them you know there, there's been this weird thing about like well the writers and the and actors are deciding how long to strike and it's like no see it's the other way around yeah they're, they're ready to come back to the table anytime you know right um and have invited you know uh invited their counterparts in the amptp to come back to the table you know i, I think the studios will uh they they'll they'll ride this out on whatever timetable makes the most sense for them inside their own system. And that's, you know, I don't know what that is. I have no idea. And what do you uh, think the clearest, yeah. clearest path though, is like my, the way that I, 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 my understanding is the way that the last, uh, this was just the writers. It wasn't SAG back then, mm-hmm. but I think it was what, 2008, the way that that ended up working out was that they m- were making deals with individual studios and, um, and then kind of forced the AMPTP as a whole to, you know, uh, to do that. Do you see that, that, that being a path? Cause that, that seems to me to be the thing that'll make the most sense to where, to where they'll strike a deal with, you know, cause it's not, 
at least based on my understanding, it's not so much the studios on the whole that are the holdouts, it's the streamers. And so, you know, to me, that seems to be the only way really out is to starve out the streamers from like, sure, Tom Cruise can go make another Mission Impossible for Paramount now because they've made, you know, an individual deal with uh, with the WGA and SAG. uh, But he's not ever going to be allowed to work for a, a streamer. You know, like, and that's something that I think they, they care about. Like, to, to me, that's what makes the most sense, um, ultimately. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you're right. I, and I think you're seeing that happen now, you know, even even in the context of the SAG strike with, with their interim agreements and with their waivers, you know, A24 is working. Right. And right now, you want to make a movie in town for, for a studio of any kind, you're going to A24, you know? Like that, they're the only game in town, really, right. outside of purely independent stuff, and and so more and more things like that will happen. And I, what I hope happens is that you know there's a renaissance of of the of the middle class movie, which, oh, which has been dead because of of tent poles and streamers, and and right. You know, independence will get up there. Like, can you imagine going to see a drama in the theater again? Like, wouldn't that <laughs> right. be neat? Um, so yeah, it's already I, amazing that Oppenheimer is like, you know, Oppenheimer and Barbie of all things are like the biggest yeah. movies this past weekend, you know, where it, it, it was an event to go see a three hour long, you know, drama about the guy that invented the A-bomb. You know? Yeah, like, but that's, that's so fucking wild. It's performing no, it's like a Marvel movie. Yeah, yeah. well, it's well, but not it's, quite it's, like that, like a mid-level Marvel. Movie, right. But, and Ant-Man. But you got to look at it and be like to make a to make an intimate character driven historical biopic you got to treat it like a marvel movie you got to shoot it in fucking imax you've got to have this huge cast of giant stars and like the world's most exciting and prolific director in this marketing campaign that's just leaving no stone unturned right like that's if you want to make a drama that's how you got to do it if you want to get it into theaters like it it didn't used to be the case and and if you're not chris nolan you know, and you, and you don't have these huge stars and this giant, large format kind of storytelling, you know, how do you make a $10 million drama and, and, and put it into theaters? Like for the last few years, no one's known. And now I feel like what'll happen as a result of the strike with the, the tentpole apparatus paralyzed, you know, mm-hmm. is you're going to get these little movies coming out that are wonderful and that have like a, a wide open distribution playing field. And, and that's just exciting. So I think, you know, outside of the fact that a lot of people may be able to make an actual living in this industry that couldn't prior to the strike, you know, when this is over, I think the other benefit of it is that we may see this explosion of very exciting movies that otherwise would never have been made. And and Mm -hmm. that's kind of my hope for something like, like life of Chuck, where I'm like, no, no one in their right mind would have made this movie two, three years ago. (laughs) Right. This this is a perfect right. time to make it independently, you know. Wow. But we'll see. This might hey, be speaking a really of uh, Nolan. You ever meet that guy? I did. I did. What What's he like? Yeah. Oh, he. So, and I met him in the weirdest way. I. I um, it was very early in uh, after I'd moved to L.A. and my ex was working. Uh, I think in the travel department on the Prestige, and so I was invited through her. Uh, to go to the cast and crew screening of the Prestige and the after party, 
And I'd never oh, made wow. any, I mean, I, I was a struggling reality TV editor and, um, and I was at the, uh, the there was like a buffet full of shrimp. I remember. And I was st- hovering there, like loading up on free shrimp. And I was like, this is amazing. I loved the movie. And there's a gentleman next to me who was waiting for his shrimp. And, and I turned <laughs> and he struck up a conversation and it was Michael Caine. And oh I, I just completely kind of shat myself and nodded my way through this conversation with Michael Caine. And then, uh, and Nolan came up to talk to him and looked over at me kind of like, who are you talking to Michael Caine? And, uh, and he very politely <laughs> was like, Oh, and this is a shrimp. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying there's this plate of shrimp. And he was like, Oh, and this is Mike. And, um, and I had actually met Michael Caine before. <laughs> Weirdly, I was working on uh, I was working on this mocap movie for Zemeckis's company. It was one of my first jobs um, as a basically a glorified PA when I when I moved out here, uh, and I was working on Beowulf. And they were shooting that on the stages next to where they were shooting Bewitched. And on our lunch break, they were shooting a scene where Nicole Kidman was walking. They were shooting on the lot and and filming right in between the stages. And we all went out on lunch to watch. And I was sitting next to a gentleman. And I looked over and again, it was Michael Caine. Um, and he, he saw my crew badge and asked me, you know, 10 questions about the mocap process. And so as I stood there with my shrimp, I had said, we've met before. You won't remember, but you know, we, we chatted for two minutes about motion capture way back at Culver city studios. And said, Oh, of course, of course. And it, very, very nice man who clearly they would have no reason to remember me, but, mm-hmm. um, but he introduced me to Nolan and I, told him how much I loved the movie and expressed my admiration for Memento um, and uh, and just kind of gushed on him. And he was really polite and and gracious and said thanks and, and asked me what I did. And I said I wanted to be a filmmaker and and he wished me the best of luck and asked what I was working on. And I you know, said I was working on a backyard improvement show for DIY Networks. Uh, <laughs> and he said, it's all, you know, it's all work. It's all storytelling. Um, and then, you know, he kind of turned to Michael Caine and I stood with my shrimp and I slowly like Homer Simpson into the, into the shrimp, right, right. <laughs> like just backed away, carrying this plate of shrimp and, and was high about it for like a week was, mm. was just like, oh my God, like to, to meet, to meet those two men was really, really something to me. And I, and I thought Nolan was a lot more gracious and generous than he needed to be with this weird kid staring at him, carrying a plate of shrimp. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you got out of that celebrity encounter without embarrassing yourself. Yeah. You know, I looked not him right in the eye him. and I said, Ted Danson. <laughs> yeah. and... If you, if you happen to cross paths with him again, I, I I'd like you to ask him a question. Sure. Um, and, and you're probably my best chance of getting this question answered. Um, I know because, you know, he's on the record with this, that he's a huge fan of like MacGruber. He was just, mm-hmm. it, there was a clip of an interview going around with him the other day where he was talking about how much like Talladega Nights is the movie where it's like he's flipping through the TV. Like if that movie's on TV and he's flipping through the channels, he'll stop, he'll drop the remote and start and just watch it till it's over. Yeah. I suspect that Chris Nolan may be, and I think you should leave fan. And I need to know if this is the <laughs> okay. case. I, I will, um, <laughs> I'll endeavor to find out. Excellent. I, I will excellent, see. Th- this is the real test of, of where my career has, has gone or not gone. 
since the the plate of shrimp days and i will i will i'm gonna exhaust every resource i have which is just one really we have the same agent um yeah we're both represented by dan aloney at at wme and and that was my big claim to fame was like i have the same agent as chris nolan and they're like oh so you get (laughs) the same kind of opportunities and it's like not even yeah yeah it's like the drill tweet where he's like you know, lower sunglasses, who's a model, by the way, like talking about his <laughs> uncle, like it's, like, it doesn't, make, <laughs> yep. doesn't really uh, rub off on you, but, but not even but, a little, but I can yeah. ask Chris <laughs> Nolan's agent very easily. If I can ask Chris Nolan this question, and, uh, if Dan is like, sure, I'll put you in touch. That'll be amazing. Or if Dan's just like, don't bother me with this shit, it'll, I'll let you know. So it would, it'll be great. Kill me to find out if like Chris Nolan is seen those sketches would just God, i hope so i oh, can I mean, you imagine i just watched the doggy door sketch from season three for maybe <laughs> the 50th time it's so fucking it's funny so fucking funny um it's yeah it's genius but i will find out this is this is the ultimate test of my celebrity i'm gonna do yes it. Oh, now yeah. i suppose we uh obviously we can skip right past the stephen king origin story question ah, hey. yeah and get uh straight to the title you brought us, which is Dolores Claiborne. This is the first time we have discussed Dolores Claiborne on this show, believe it or not. Believe that it or not. That surprises me. That legitimately yeah. surprises me because it's such a, it's a really great book and it's a great movie. And yeah. I'm surprised where people didn't grab it, to be honest. Well, yeah. And this, real quick, this, um, like you were on the hook for this one for a long fucking time because, like, this particular episode. Because I remember I was staying at Vespi's place like last August or something. And we watched it. I had never seen it. And we, were, we knew that that like we had that sort of we knew we had an episode with you and Dolores Claiborne coming on, along at some point. So might as well watch this movie. Perfect time for it. And I fucking loved it. I watched right. it again just the other day. It's I think it's one of the best Stephen King adaptations. It's mm. wild to me now that I've seen it like that. It isn't um, it, it isn't name checked more and these like, right. you know, every week there's some website is running a fucking listicle about, you know, ranking Stephen King movies. And, you know, I never see this thing in the top 10. And also, I will add this. Um, I think it's better than the book. I, I, I think the changes that the movie makes uh, are are make for a more satisfying story. Well, they they make a profound change with Selena, I think. Yes. Yeah. Like, they, yes. like like a a one of those changes that when you see the difference, you're like, of course. Why? Mm-hmm. It, I could imagine Steve kind of slapping his forehead and just being like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like like the the version of the book where Dolores is telling these events to to a cop cops. versus to Selena, it's a very different emotional yeah, it is. stake and and it when you see it in the movie it's like this is so obviously the better choice and um and the acting is so great and it's it's kind of right riding this this ascension of Kathy Bates out of misery yeah. where mm-hmm. you know like that she's coming back to headline a Stephen King drama you know you've got this incredible supporting cast around her um it's it's a prestige movie as you watch it and and to your to your point i cannot agree with you more it has evaporated from the discourse mm-hmm. and and i can't explain it either like it's well, it, yeah it's even weird that it evaporated 
considering how Tony Gilroy is like the new hot shit, you know, with, uh, I mean, listen, he was always well respected, but yeah, in terms of like being in front of the cinema and nerd obsessives, like Tony Gilroy with Andor with Rogue One. Yeah. Like he's, he's does, you know, you, you would think somebody would go, Oh, and remember he wrote a Stephen King adaptation for Taylor Hackford of all people, Yeah, you know, that, that everybody's ignored. And you mentioned the cast cause it's not just Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, who's also great. She's great. There, but it's like you got Christopher Plummer, you got mm-hmm. Eric Bogosian, who's mm-hmm. you, you know John David C. Riley. Is, John is, C. Riley looks like eleven years yeah, old in this. Movie. Yeah, he's a baby in this movie. Yeah, yeah. David Strathairn, Bob Gunton from Shawshank. It's like yeah. There, there's it's one of those movies and you know to kind of what we were talking about with Oppenheimer it's like it's one of those movies where every time a new character is introduced you go oh I know that person yeah, yeah. Like, oh I know that I recognize that it's just a film full of faces that you know. And it's also kind of what we were talking about. Like it, it's not a giant high stakes uh, drama. Uh, it's a movie that could, that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. this kind of movie Dolores Claiborne doesn't exist today. Um, you know, you couldn't make this, this kind of slow burn. Did she, or did she not kill her boss? You know, movie in this way, it, it seems to be very much a product of its time. Very much. Very so. much. And, yeah. and it, it was an event when it came out, which is the, the other thing that, that like, you know, the, the weight that studios would put behind a movie like this and that audiences would seek out it, that you're right. That, that is over, you know, this, this today is, is a movie that gets made for a streamer and mm-hmm. is probably ransacked along the way and, right. and, yeah. and crammed full of other stuff to try to, make it you know pop off the streaming service and to do such a a clear-cut kind of deliberate and and pensive drama um and to do it so well i i i admire the movie a great deal and and you know the book i i I also really love um the movie is special and it it, it's this very interesting era in king you know when because he wrote this in, in gerald's game so close together right as meant to be a trilogy, you know, um, that never was really finished. And, you know, we had to watch, didn't have to, we got to watch this movie when we were prepping uh, Gerald's game, because I wanted to look at the way they did the eclipse. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look at how they handled uh, the scene with, um, with Selena and with her father on the boat, which right. is mm-hmm. a scene that is really difficult to watch but handled in a, in a very minimalistic and matter of fact kind of way that I was like, this is, this is, if we're going to be dealing with so many of the same kinds of things in, in Gerald's game, we, we have to look at this. And, and I find myself really impressed by the filmmaking techniques of their flashbacks and the in-camera flashbacks. Yeah. The the lighting changes and the color palette changes and, what they accomplished with a simple pan and a, and a, and a switch of the light and then a, a, a reverse shot. And it's so much that I love about storytelling with these two timelines and, and how to braid them together. And the protagonist doesn't even really know if she's in the present or the past and it all just flows together. And it's, it's really powerfully done. And I feel like I've been consciously or subconsciously stealing from it for <laughs> since 1995 when I, right. I saw it when I was in, in high school, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I realize we did not lay out the plot of this one yet. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and we should probably do that before we go on. Would you, would you mind doing the honors on that, Mike? Like just the the general, what is this about? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so it, it centers around a woman named Dolores Claiborne, um, who lives on Little Tall Island, which for King fans, you know, means means quite a bit if you're a Storm of the Century mm-hmm. fan. Uh, they mention mm-hmm. her in Storm of the Century, which is kind of cool. Jeff DeMaria yeah. says her name and it's exciting. Um, but th- she's this uh, woman who's kind of very gruff and, and for lack of a better word, I'll use it because it's a word she uses. She's she's bitchy. And the, the whole town has kind of always felt this way about her. And she's in custody as, as the story begins for what may be the murder of her employer, who's just this awful woman who she worked for for decades and who was abusive and, and all these things. And it looks like Dolores may have killed her. Um, and this kind of soft mystery of whether or not she did is intercut with the other major kind of event in Dolores's past, which has shaped her, uh, how the town perceives her, which is the death of her husband, um, which may or may not have also been foul play um, and also been, you know, at the hands of Doris uh, of Dolores. And uh, her daughter, Selena, who is a child in, in, in the past storyline and, and an adult in, in the current storyline is kind of, caught in the middle uh, of this reconciliation of who her mother is and, and who her father was and, and what is going on. And uh, it's, it's one of King's more um, subtle and definitely feminist stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it all kind of, you, you, you learn the truth of the past and the truth of, of the death of Vera kind of um, in different ways, depending on the, you're watching the movie or reading the book, but and it all kind of comes together into this portrait of, of this woman. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful drama with some great thriller elements. Yeah. And just for the sake of future reference, because you, you touched on this just a moment ago, but uh, what is the connective tissue between Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game? Uh, so they were stories that King had meant to include in a collection he was calling In the Path of the Eclipse. And they were meant to be three distinct stories that that occurred during this massive solar eclipse event. And each one, yeah. Um, Each story is about, uh, is about women in various degrees of abuse under, under the control of different men and, and how they find their way to freedom uh, and how complicated those journeys are. And, um, in Gerald's game, it's Jesse Burlingham and, and she's handcuffed to the bed and she's remembering this fateful, uh, fateful day with her father when, when the solar eclipse happened. And then Dolores Claiborne, similarly, uh, an eclipse plays a huge part in, in this abusive marriage that she's in. But each book references the other explicitly. And uh, Dolores mm-hmm. has a vision of a little girl sitting with her father um, and doesn't understand the vision and it's she's she's seeing jesse from gerald's game and similarly jesse has this vision of a woman um in the in the the glow of the eclipse and something to do with her husband and a well and and that links to dolores claiborne and and the idea was that these victims of abuse are somehow lightly supernaturally and thematically connected to each other all 
all in this moment of, of solar eclipse. And um, there was a third story that was meant to round it all off. And he didn't, the Tommy he didn't knockers. finish it. Yeah, yeah, it was the Tommy <laughs> knockers. Um, no. He didn't finish Do you know what it's finish about? It. I don't. Uh, he's written a little bit about what the... He was going to put a collection out called In the Path of the Eclipse, but he eventually instead put Dolores and Gerald out as their own novels. Right. Um, and, uh, and then kind of moved away from it. But, um, but that's the connection. And it's fascinating in the books when, when you hit those moments. Right. Um, sure. You know, when Taylor Hackford made Dolores Claiborne, uh, he, for whatever reason, didn't see far enough into the future to make a direct link to my movie. <laughs> uh, which, you know... Yeah, his okay, eclipse looked yeah, cool, a little whatever, different. Taylor. Um, but, you know, we did many, many years later go out of our way to, to honor that connection um, and reference Dolores Claiborne in, in Gerald's game because I wanted to try to preserve some of that. So the, right. you, know, you guys know that the joy of, of being a constant reader is, is those veins of connection between the King stories. Right. And mm -hmm. it was just one that existed and, and I just really wanted to try to, you know, to honor it. It makes um, me wonder if Rose matter was like somehow evolved out of the third story. Cause, cause all he just had yeah. that run in the nineties yeah. where, where that that was like a, a a main theme, and that uh, uh, that was going on with his main characters, and because that's another one, you know, that's uh, about a uh, a woman dealing, you know, escaping abuse, yeah. Um, and it's really just missing an eclipse, and it could fit right in there, you know, as like kind of a a third twin sister of of those stories. Absolutely, I, I think you're onto something there. That would make enormous sense. I think. Yet another yes, thing to ask yeah. Steve about next time he comes on the show. Yeah. Rose yeah, Matter, Rose. was that the unofficial third 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 book in that? Yeah, she could have run away from the husband and gone to Little Tall. And yeah. that's all you really need to That's all you know, that would connect yeah. it right there. Have the eclipse yeah, yeah. happen some time before she enters the labyrinth or as she's entering the labyrinth, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Huh. And yeah, I've, I I was going to bring up Rose Matter too because I've always looked at those three books as sort of an unofficial trilogy. Like, yes. you know, they're they're so thematically comparable that it's it, it seems silly not to. Yeah. That's right. It's mineral time, and we have our friends at Lumi Labs back in this spot. We welcome back Lumi. We missed you. You guys know Lumi Labs. We're talking about the kings of microdosing. That's when you take a little THC, or in this case, a synthetic THC gummy, throughout the day to keep yourself nice and calm. You're not getting high in mind. You're just keeping a little relaxed. I personally use them uh, at nighttime. I, I'm not the kind of person. If I have anything to do in the day, I don't want to feel even a little buzzed. It like I get in my own head about it. So. Uh, so I use them mostly as a sleep aid. I, I, I've been very upfront and vocal about my trouble maintaining a normal sleep schedule. And these Lumi Labs have worked a charm in keeping me on a nice human being schedule where I am up during the day, uh, which isn't ideal at this time in Texas when the daytime is 100 and I think uh, 90,000, 190,000 degrees. That sounds day. right. That sounds right. Uh, so usually it's not ideal, but uh, you know, if I want to interact with society, I kind of need to do it. And these Lumi gummies help me do that. 
this product is aimed at helping you relax, which, you know, I can vouch works. That's how I get to sleep. Uh, the best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and they're not affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Very well done. And now... Let's get back to the show. So one thing that's uh, that you mentioned a little bit uh, right at the beginning of this is that one of the reasons this movie is as successful as it is, is that it takes some pretty wild swings uh, from the source material. I And I didn't really recognize that until I revisited the book. Um, uh <laughs> Because I, I listened to it one on I, I listened to it on audiobook for my revisit, and it's one of my favorite uh, audiobooks that uh, that I've heard from any of the King stuff. Uh, Frances Sternhagen reads it, and oh, uh, you know, you know, she was you know the uh, Richard Farnsworth's character's you know uh, partner slash wife in in Misery. She mm. was the old lady in the in the mist, you know, that was using the hairspray to set fire to the bugs and everything. So she's got Stephen King connections. Um, great, great actor. And she just kills the reading. Like it's one of the only times I've heard an audiobook narrator, not, uh, um, not fuck up a main accent. And she, mm. you know, and this is the one that if there's a bad main accent, since it's told mostly from Dolores's own, uh, mouth, this story, uh, that's the one that, that would really, really fuck everything up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think I, I just want to kind of introduce that as, as the, the difference is a little bit like all the adaptations of Carrie that you've seen, like none of them uh, outside of the Brian Fuller version uh, made for TV have took the style in which he wrote. He wrote that story, you know, which is that kind of after the fact, you know, let me sit down and tell you a yarn kind of kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and how much do you do you think that would like kind of undercut the emotion if they had like taken that tact? Because I feel like by bringing Selena in. Cause in the book, Selena's like never really there. She just writes and calls her mom. Like n- none of that really plays into the story. Um, like as much as it does here, but when you have it be turned into this mother daughter story, like that completely changes everything. And, and so you have a structure difference, you have an emotional center difference, but it also feels tonally exactly the book. You know, yeah. I think that's kind of maybe the miracle of, of this adaptation. And maybe that would be a good jumping off point for, for the yeah. next round of chat. No, totally. You're, and, and like, it's so hard to make such a sizable change to something and make it feel very faithful at the same time. And this pulls it off. I, I think, you know, Selena is the reason that Dolores in both the book and the movie does so many of the things that she does. Right. And um, and so it seems in the book like Selena was, you know, freed from this situation one way or another and is gone. And Dolores is left picking up the pieces in Selena's absence in a lot of ways. But to make to make the story about Selena coming home to have to deal with her mother and to have to confront not only her kind of imperfect recollection of the past, but what her mother did for her. Right. You know, it, it's Selena's story then. And Dolores 
her actions then and now, they've all already happened. It, it, the, the battleground is Selena's soul. And Selena comes into the movie hating her mother. Yeah. And, um, and viewed her father as the victim in, in, in that, yeah. even after. Even know. after everything that happened. And, it, and it's, right. you know, all of Dolores's life and all the choices and sacrifices that she's made have led to this moment in the movie. And it's, it's what will Selena take away from this? And who will she be when, when the truth is, is outed? And when she kind of really internalizes the reality of her life as an adult. And in the book, that's not, those stakes are absent. And so it's, it's, it's much more about Dolores tell, explaining why she did what she did, which is interesting and very emotional. But the urgency of the Selena Dolores relationship that the movie achieves and the personal stakes, the difference between Dolores having to tell this story to the reader, you know, through a surrogate police officer and having to tell these events to her daughter um, with the growing <laughs> realization that her daughter doesn't remember, which is one of my favorite Kathy Bates moments of the movie right. is her looking at her with that. When the penny drops, she says, my God, you really don't remember, yeah. you know, um, which is heartbreaking because like yeah. as a parent, you, you want your child to forget trauma like that. And Dolores the the tragedy of Dolores in the movie is she has to make Selena remember. That's mm -hmm. awful. Um, but it's it, yeah, so emotionally but it, more. But it's very powerful. meaty. It's yeah. awful, but it's very meaty. It's a great, great character stuff. Um, can I ask you something that you're kind of in a unique position to answer? Considering not only did you you know adapt this story's twinner, but you've you know looking at looking at the movie. Um, David Strathairn is like one of our great actors, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think about this anytime a great actor takes on a despicable performance or despicable character, right? Whether it's like Willem Dafoe jumps to mind whenever he, uh, um, he appeared in Kinsey as the, um, as the child molester, the, the child rapist or whatever. Right. And he right. has this whole scene where he's trying to convince Kinsey you know, that it's just as acceptable as any of the other quote unquote lewd homosexuals or whatever was unacceptable at the time. Right. And, and I think about like, how do you approach an actor like David Strathern, Strathern, or, um, you know, and you had to do this with Henry Thomas and Gerald's game and say like, listen, you're going to be doing, playing a character who's, you know, abusing a child for one. And, you know, no matter how, delicately you handle it no matter how delicately you shoot it and how you know how safe you keep the child performer and and you can do do all that stuff still at the end of the day you know you have this great actor like david strathern who has to have a scene where he is assaulting his daughter yeah. and you know with henry thomas he had to have a scene where he was assaulting his daughter you know i know that acting is all about going places that you wouldn't go in real life but still that's got to be really psychologically difficult and how do you handle that as a storyteller like do you have the same th thought when you when you watch the fairy scene in Dolores Claiborne of like, holy shit, you know, yeah. that must have been a, a billion conversations to get to that final moment, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you it's, it's I had this movie to point to when we were doing Gerald's Game. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I when Henry and I first had our conversations about it, you know, I I mentioned David Strathairn in this film and, and was saying, you know, how. And it takes an enormous amount of courage to to put yourself in a position to perform scenes like this, both for 
you know, both for for David Strathairn, but also for the young actress who's playing Selena right. here, um, who's gone on to do terrific, terrific work as she's gotten older. Uh, Ellen, Ellen Muff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the two of them together in that scene, you know, it, it's it's horrifying to watch. It's profoundly kind of matter of factly presented, which I think is how is one of the big lessons I took from this movie. Right. Um, I can only imagine the conversations that led up to it. Um, and that was in a world, you know, I mean, geez, even when we did Gerald's game, we didn't have the protections that we have in place now with intimacy coordinators and, right, right. and some of the other, you know, really terrific fail safes that have been built into the system. We had to kind of coordinate that ourselves. You know, my, my thing with Henry was always, look, this is a really uncomfortable place to go. It's a very human story. And I wouldn't want any of us to have to walk down this road at all unless the message at the end of our, our story was important and, and correct. And, and we felt it was with, with Gerald's game. And, and I, I think it is with Dolores Claiborne, you know, you're, you're willing to, to kind of go to a place that that's, that's that dark and uncomfortable. If, if the message you're giving someone is important enough on the other side of it. Right. And um, I can't speak for what they went through on, on this movie. I can tell you that, you know, Henry's a, a remarkable actor who was very brave about taking on the part and said, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be tough and it's going to be really a a tough place to go emotionally, but yeah, let's, let's do it. It's an important movie. And I like, I really like and believe in the story we're telling, but it wasn't until we filmed, it wasn't the scene on the bench for us. um, Although that was awful. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the way through that was just, we, we relied on Kiara and Kiara's mother who I had next to me at the monitor the entire time. Right. Um, to make sure that, you know, that everyone was, was always a hundred percent, you know, comfortable. And we, we ended up being far more uncomfortable than, than Kiara was in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the scene afterward for us in Gerald's game. It was the scene in the bedroom where they have the conversation. Yeah. The, the emotional um, manipulation we've talked about yes. this uh, yeah. on the show. It is that, yeah, that, that is by far the most horrendous thing that, that, well, I mean, shit, I can't say it's the most horrendous thing that character does, but to, to me, there's just something deeper and sharper about the way that he like just kind of emotionally breaks her in that moment. And, you know, like forever, that's as traumatic as the incident was like, I, I don't know, maybe it's just cause we don't see that. We don't see that, that manipulation moment, you know, yeah. which you know, it is shown in, in media, but it's it, to, to me that that is even, even way more revulsive revulsion. Um, Completely. And, yeah. and, and that was, it was clear. We did, we did the rehearsal for that and it was clear that that scene was worse. And, mm. and we, we shot Kiara's side of it. She was brilliant. We shot Henry's side. I think we only did like one take or two takes tops. Cause it was like, let's just get out of this scene. Like Correct. we have, we have enough to, to put the movie together. Let's just please not, live in this for a second longer than we have to. And I remember <laughs> yeah. Henry got up when we wrapped the scene and he walked out onto the dock and he stood there by himself for probably about a half hour. And, oh, and I went out to talk to him after a, a little while because I was a little worried for him. Because he, he had a daughter who was, who was that age when we were filming it. And, and so, you know, I, I went out to see if he was okay and he was really shaken up. And, um, and we kind of were like, yeah, we, we, we did great work, but let's not 
do it again. <laughs> like, let's, let's get out of it. <laughs> and let's move on to something, you know, palatable, like ripping the flesh off a of Carla's hand, you know, like something <laughs> right. fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, th- there's a, there's a sensitivity and a, a gravity with which Dolores Claiborne handles these scenes and, and King handles them in the books because they're, they're at no point ever meant to be titillating or exploitative. Right. You know, they're, they're presented in the stark human horror that they are. And I think that's the thing is, is that you have to kind of realize that, you know, you're not making an exploitative moment. You're not trying to shock people for shock's sake. You know, you're, you're really trying to kind of honor what is ultimately a very important and empowering story about trauma and abuse and, and ending the cycle of victimhood. And, and, you know, Dolores Claiborne does that and, and Gerald's game does that on the page. And, and when I watch the way this movie handles it, there's, there's a very interesting difference. Um, and I wondered, I, I, it struck me watching it again to prepare for this talk because one of the elements of the movie that I admire a lot, though I, I have issues with, is Danny Elfman's music. Mm. Um, right. He has a beautiful bedrock score that sets the tone immediately in the opening credits and is wonderful. But there are moments in the flashbacks of abuse where the music goes ballistic. Mm. And it's if you think about the first time he hits her in the kitchen right. with a piece of wood, the music goes huge and and grand, you know, and ba 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 ba, yeah, and and it's it's performative. When what he did is horrific enough, you know, like right. the, you don't need the the music syrup to to reinforce the way you should be feeling most times, and it's like you don't you don't need to be reinforced. Um, and it takes away from some of the urgent reality of it because the music says it's a movie, you know, right. But if you look at the fairy scene, there's not a note of music. Right. It is it is just the the sound of the engine of the boat and the seagulls. It's the sounds that Selena would have heard, and um, it makes it so much scarier. And you you realize that even the filmmaking at that point is uncomfortable doing the filmmaking stuff, like doing the movie making stuff. It, it like the movie kind of puts down its instruments and it's just kind of like, we, we're all going to get through this moment together. Um, but I'm not as a movie going to make a thing about it. Like it, it just mm. feels wrong. And I, we had that feeling with, with our approach to Gerald too, where, where it was like, we're dealing with these fantastic cinematic elements of the eclipse itself, you know, of uh, we had we had music that was playing diegetically in the scene, fireworks, you know, like all these things, and it became about like getting out of the way and not wanting to embellish things in a moment like that, and right. just kind of just be like, you know, respectfully step back, let the story play out with as little in the frame line as is necessary to make your point and then get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this movie is an abject lesson in how to do that correctly, I think. Mm. And, and we, we talked about it a lot. Wow. It's, it sounds like that you're talking about and like 
capturing the authenticity of a horrific moment as to not exploit it. Right. Um, yeah. and, and there is a little bit of, I get what you're saying when it comes to Strathern's character, because he is a little big for, for the movie, not saying that it's a bad performance. You know, he's got the accent, he's got the presence. It's a little, a tad theatrical, but it works for the character. Don't get me wrong. Uh, character of Joe, um, but I'm wondering if a lot of that feeling now, now I'm going to have to go back and watch it is because all of his big abuse moments outside of the ferry, the physical abuse, the, you know, that he, he, uh, he does towards, uh, his wife in this, this instance are under underlined by a more bombastic score. I never thought of it, but, uh, um, there, it never occurred to me anyway. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious as to if that's going to kind of explain a little bit why I, I always thought the character was a little bit more outside outsized than the movie that he's in you know it's it's interesting i i i've always kind of assumed that the version of him we see in the movie is the way dolores remembers him right right right. and and that's why the movie's so disgusted by him um he's always kind of sweaty he's got a sheen of sweat on him yeah he's just gross and and like what, what you never get a sense of is why she married him to begin with. And, and right. the book gives you a little more of that where you're like, okay, I, I, she didn't know the monster she was marrying because he hit it in the beginning right. and, and the alcohol, you know, hadn't taken him over completely yet when they were younger. And, and, you know, you, you get, you get a little more of that and I'm not advocating humanizing the character more. He's, he's a despicable character. Right. But I, I think I viewed the music and the, the presentation of him very much as this is Dolores's recollection of him and the events are correct. And this is who the man really was as she got to know him. And, and so that gives you all the bombastic, the music and the cinematic treatment of mm-hmm. him and, and kind of this performance from Strathairn that, that leans into that, but she wasn't on the ferry. And so that scene is done way more objectively and his performance is different in that scene. Then you've yeah. seen him. He's he's collected, you know, in a way. And and it's like that to me, and this is even more disturbing. I'm like, that's more like what he likely was like in life, mm. you know, which is is worse than he's not than sloppy the in that scene. And, no. and that and that that yeah, like you said, it makes it even worse because he is fully I mean, that's he's wrapping up your two you know, abuse scenes that you had to deal with in Gerald's game into one scene, you know, where he is playing mind games with her at the same time that he's getting, you know, that he's abusing her, you know, it's, and you're right. There is something very stark about that, that moment, which is probably why, you know, why it stands out so much as being, you know, so impactful. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard stuff to, to watch and it's really tough to shoot and act. And, and I think, you know, this movie's on a tightrope and they, I think they landed it, but it, it, I, I can only imagine it. And back then in, in 95, you know, when you didn't have a Dolores Claiborne to point to, you know, going into it, mm-hmm. right. Like, you know, what other examples were there that they could look at and be like, this is what, this is how we're going to approach this subject matter for a major studio movie, mm-hmm. like for a prestige Oscar bait studio movie. And it's like, that's that, I don't know how to, imagine those conversations honestly right i'm thinking of the color purple yeah mm. oh, you know it, yeah. it's similarities and differences obviously but you know another thing where you know a prestige drama big budget 
Spielberg's mm-hmm. shooting it, you know, and mm-hmm. you've got to go through all the abuse that takes place over that saga. I guess that would be a point of comparison, but you know, those, those movies are few and far between to your point. Right. Now, one thing we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is Kathy Bates's performance here. Mm. Mm. It is just as great as her performance in misery. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a less showy role, but they're both, uh, just powerhouse performances. In fact, it would be foolish to attempt to rank them, but I would like to have you do that now, Mike. Can you can you rank <laughs> Kathy Bates' performances? Which do you prefer? You go in Misery oh. or you go in Dolores? What amazes me about this is that she's playing two distinct characters. The shocking thing to me is that, first of all, it's some of the best uh, age makeup you're going to see because I, I just accepted her. I accept Christopher Plummer. You know, um, I accept all the actors in that makeup. And when you see them younger and they're playing those versions of themselves and it's like, oh, that's what the actors really looked like while they filmed it. It's it's really kind of like it's it's interesting which one feels like the special effect now. And, you know, I, I think Kathy Bates, both versions of Dolores, you know, on kind of on either side of her life here, these bookends that she creates are so compelling and strong and broken and and dignified and desperate and and kind of all of it um you know i i think she's hypnotic in misery i think this is a deeper performance oh yeah yeah, yeah. and and i think it's a a much more challenging performance for her as an actor i would imagine to to reconcile these two dolores that she's tasked with and i and i think the rest of the cast similarly is just as effective. Doing mm-hmm. that. I think, you know, I, I think Christopher Plummer is wonderful in the, in this role. It's one of my favorite roles of his. Mm. Yes. Um, I was hoping this is going to come up because I, I wanted to talk about the glint he has in his eye in this role. It is, he is so mischievous and yeah. And oh, so it, devious and, and eating it up as he's going along. And he has like the sparring he does with her is so good. Like in these, mm-hmm. these tiny little moments that are beautifully written too. But when, when he first comes to collect a hair sample from her and, and how they make it humiliating for her. And then she throws off a thing about his wife and he fires back that his wife has been dead, you know, and then just underlines natural causes, mm-hmm. you know, and he wins the scene. And it's, and it's like the, the sense that these two people are so well matched, but that, he has been so obsessed with her since the death of her husband. Um, and that there's that intention is tinged with misogyny and, and misplaced assumption and, and, you know, moral righteousness. And, and it's really a great performance because he's abusive too. And you see him in the past abusing Selena right after she was abused. And he doesn't believe he's doing, he believes he's on the side of the angels. And, and protecting yeah. the innocent and it's a great performance it's it's it shows what a powerhouse actor he he was and you know i, I think it's one of his underrated performances but I, I think the same is true of of judy parfit who plays vera donovan yes she's the wonderful honestly. Yeah, she's yeah. the person I think of when I think of the first person to pop into mind is a close up on on her piercing eyes. Yeah. You know, there's like this great close up she has where she's, you know, telling uh, 
uh, telling Dolores that sometimes being a bitch is the only thing that a woman can hold on to in this in this world. You know, yeah. It's like, oh man, yeah, I agree. She's, I mean, everybody knocks it out of the park, but I feel, like, yeah, she's great in this. And she she could be such a she could be such a one note character in yeah. the hands of a lesser actor. But I don't think when I see her, I think Vera. It's it's yeah. she plays the character so well. That's who she will always kind of be <laughs> first for me. Right. And and when you realize she herself is a victim of abuse and how she deals with it, you know, and and the the control with which she turns her cards and and shares her secrets as her trust with Dolores grows over the years. Um, it's a fascinating portrait, and it's like I. I find that woman just as complex and, and fascinating as Dolores Claiborne. And that's awesome. And then you have these dudes kicking <laughs> around who very much know their, where they are in this story. Like John C. Riley, <laughs> Eric Bogosian, and Strathairn, you know, it's like they're, they're here to be simple and to, and to be human. But, you know, it, it, it really... It's it's a feminist movie through and through. It's a feminist story through and through. And I, I was very inspired by the care it takes, you know, with with its with its characterizations and, and how it handles every all. It's just it's so good. But the acting is off the chain and uh, even yeah, Bogosian in a what what could what could be a thankless role. Like just a why do you have Eric Bogosian here to be, you know, <laughs> to be Selena's boss. Right. <laughs> but but yeah. he's great. And yeah. and you know, there's a I don't think it's accidental that he looks like her dad. Right. You know? And and there's just all sorts of really fascinating stuff in there. But yeah. Man, I didn't even think of that. But that's dead on right. Yep. Can I before we leave the the actors, um I'm just going to throw something out there. You do with it what you will. Kathy Bates, Sylvia Pittston. That's all. That's all I got to say. <laughs> just, just let I me mean, know. we should be so lucky, you know, uh, a hundred. Uh, absolutely. Um, and you better, you better believe I'll be begging Kathy Bates to, to come, <laughs> come be part of, of this. I mean, she, she, to me, you know, owns a huge corner of the tower just for her contribution to the, to the King universe already. <laughs> You know, yeah, but I, I'm like, yeah, but even you, if you just show up like you did it for Mick Garris in the stand, like, come, yeah. just show up for a minute. I don't care. Like, just be here. <laughs> but you told so, us off air you were doing uh, the Dark Tower was just going to be all puppets. Yeah, we're 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 going for the <laughs> we're going for um we're going for for a very Avenue Q vibe. Yeah, the feeble vibe. I gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because it is for adults. This, yeah. this story. So yeah, so, yeah, you don't want it. Yeah, you you want to be appropriate to the source. That's material. how you deal with yeah. the question of Jake aging. Is he's a puppet? Uh, we're using <laughs> we're using the same puppet from the Muppet movie um, that that played uh, that played the guy Jason's little brother. Yeah, it's yes. gonna be great. Yeah. Good movie, by the way. Indeed. <laughs> so, what do you? So, why? Why do you think this one has slipped through the crack? The cracks. Is it just because it's not as flashy? Is it because it's not a horror movie? You know what? A, what a great what question. What is it? Yeah, there's not. I, this is a, a technically almost flawless film. I would argue. Yeah, and I, um, I agree. The script is great. Performances are out of the. All of them knocking it out of the park. So. 
so what's the holdup here? You know, it's a, it is a bit of a mystery to me because all the arguments I could make, you know, stand by me doesn't have this problem, you know, like, right. uh, but it's like, okay, that's a rite of passage movie. Sure. Um, misery doesn't have this problem. I think misery enjoys its, its place on the perch, you know, um, Gerald's game doesn't have this problem. Well, Gerald, well, Gerald's game, you know, we, time will tell. We, we, we still have some ways to go. But I um, still see that one getting name checked as one of the better ones. I hope so. If, if you know, it, it, I, it's, it's, it's just so buried up on, on, on a streaming service. It's hard to find. But mm. I, I just wish it was out on, on Blu-ray, Blu-ray. Like Dolores Claiborne. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know why it is that this one just doesn't kind of bubble up to where it should in the conversation. Do you think you know, it just gets eclipsed a little bit that because it came out like after Shawshank and, and not only after Shawshank, but after Shawshank became a success on video, you know, it's like, yeah. do you think it just got, got kind of lost in, in this quote unquote serious non-horror Stephen King movie. Yeah. Thing. I guess it, and it's only a few years before the, the prestige King thing started to slip. Right. It's only a few years right. before like apt pupil. Right. Where it was like, who's who's going to grab onto this movie? Right. Um, uh, like it's you're right. Like Shawshank had 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 its moment. You'd had this escalation of King being taken seriously. That kind of goes back to Reiner first kind of pulling him up into into legitimate, you know, dramatic filmmaking. And then Darabont right. just hitting that ball over the wall. Right. And then you've got this one, which is which is a it's kind of a one off. It 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 it's hung on Kathy Bates, which is, I mean, you can't, you can't ask for a, a better place to hang a movie, but um, it does seem to kind of f- start to fall between the cracks where there's a little bit of fatigue on the prestige King and you're starting to get diminishing returns where people are grabbing more and more obscure titles from him and trying to turn it into Shawshank and right. trying to kind of make these event movies happen off of King titles that like, you know, don't necessarily carry that narrative heft with them. Um, and it's kind of before we started descending back into like King being made for TV or movie of the week or, you know, kind of hitting the low budget end of the the horror spectrum. And then then we've entered the new era of just remaking everything. And it's like, this is on that downslope, I guess Shawshank has sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room Maybe. coming into this but oh, yeah. I, I i think there's another plausible theory here and that's just that it's the subject matter here is tough yeah right. this tough. isn't it's like tough. a movie you throw on and it, this isn't it or the shining even or like misery is fun know. right yeah. yeah misery yeah. is fun yeah there's nothing not fun, fun about this movie yeah. you know right you know, you don't have the boys over and crack some brews and watch Dolores. Although I guess that's exactly, <laughs> we what, did. We did. That's exactly yeah. what we did. But, but unless yeah. your, your people co- don't have the boys over to, yeah. to drink and watch um, Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, unless your who boys are. aren't your co-hosts on a Stephen King podcast. That that's not what yeah. you do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, no, we I, have I, the same, I, I think that, that's a, that I think thing, that plays a big part here. Yeah, nice. I think you're right. I and when I was getting ready to watch this again, and I said to Kate, I was like, Oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go watch Dolores Claiborne to get ready for the King cast do you want to watch with me? And she was just kind of like, nah, <laughs> you know, she's like, I, she was like, I love that movie, but ouch. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I get it. I get it. Like it. Yeah. It, it hits, it hits. And there's, 
Yeah. There's something tonally about that because we've had this discussion when it comes to the dead zone before where yeah. when you remind people it exists, they go, oh, fuck, of course, of course, that that's actually going to completely change my my list of best Stephen King movies. Um, and for some reason, people always leave out the dead zone until you say, what about the dead zone? You go, OK, shit, that's great. That's up the top top of my list now. I think Dolores Claiborne's in kind of a similar similar area but it doesn't she doesn't have the sound bite of you know of walking doing his walking best you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. no she doesn't no, have it, her the ice is gonna break like she doesn't, no. doesn't have that although yeah although although she has one delivery in this that that always stuck with me and it stuck with me from the fucking trailer and i remember it vividly as a kid where she's like like yeah one of us is gonna end up in the bone yard yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's her version of that so i'll have to do redo the intro for the king cast and throw that in there somewhere yeah. the movie it, it is an interesting study in in different amazing actors approaches to the main accent which ah. It is. Which really is like, okay, you've got some of the best actors working at the height of their craft, and that accent is tough. Like it's it's not easy to (laughs) to approach. And you watch people taking some pretty big swings at it a few times, and you have to kind of be like, respect. It's it's sort of like graveyard shift in that way. Right. Except except it's more here it's way more successful. (laughs) Maybe more hits than misses. Well, it, it cracks me up thinking about, you know, the other great Little Tall Island story, Storm of the Century, mm. uh, which is also just a, an amazing collection of accent effort. And mm-hmm. the, uh, you the mean guy, uh, Midnight Mass Year Zero? Yes. Midnight, <laughs> Midnight Mass, uh, the prototype. It, it's um, when you see like Jeff DeMunn, yeah. when he's talking about Dolores Claiborne during the eclipse and her husband, you know, and it's like you see Jeff going to town and then it cuts to, you know, Tim Daly as Mike Anderson, the lead. And he's like, you're absolutely right. And it's like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Daly was just like, nope, not going to play. You know, every good luck, all the rest of you guys. And, and you can kind of see each actor making the decision for themselves of like, you know, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm going for the accent or like, no, nah, I'm just not. It's like the the cult members in in fucking hereditary who who are like some of them are like I'm I'm naked and the others are like I'm in sweats and it apparently was was up to each of them in the moment or it's just like just go with your heart and it's like it's like that with the accents it really is just like we're not going to prescribe anything you guys just do what's right for you and it's right. so and neat you, to watch what people do when you were in Bangor for for our event, did you run into people with heavy main accents? Because much to our shock, we all, there was only like one or two people we met that had what I would have described as a Stephen King accent while we were out and about. And one of them, and the one that was the heaviest, was the guy that owned the Airbnb we stayed at. Right, I I didn't run into it much at all, and and even like Stephen King. Yeah. doesn't have like the Stephen King main accent. Like he has, he has, he's got some flavor to it and he's got certain kind of vocal habits that are, that are clearly of Maine, but I don't listen to him and, and get that Fred Gwynn pet cemetery vibe <laughs> from him. You're like, it, it really has become its own genre of accent. And I was surprised mm-hmm. in Banger just how many people were just like, Oh, Hey, how are you? Like, okay. Yeah. Cool. I was. I, mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but you know, I just i I thought it'd be like I'd order the pancakes and someone would tell me sometimes that is better. You know, like it, it's, it's like <laughs> don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. It's it's very um, it's very telling and very interesting. But um, but yeah, I I thought 
yeah, the one of us in the boneyard is a great, great <laughs> example, and you've got to use it in something. Oh, you got to, you got to. We, I know we've got a, a yeah. time constraint here. Yeah, but, yeah, um, I got to go pretty soon before my my uh, my kids come back from their uh, their summer camp and and run rat, yes. uh, rampant through the house. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious about something. Um, my last question: You, um, if this movie had not been made. Do you think you would have tried to make it? Yes, I do. I, I think um, I think I absolutely would have. It, it, it's it's a story that just it, it hits so many of, of the things that I that I love about the kind of stories I, I like to tell. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, it's very that, much in your wheelhouse. It very much is structurally the the thematics, the characters. You know, it, it's it's right in my. In, in the kind of zone I would have loved to, to adapt this. It's so good though, that it, it falls into the category for me of don't remake something that you can't imagine how to materially improve. Right. And, and to me, it's like, this was, it's like someone who's like, I'm going to remake the dead zone or, or Shawshank. It's like, no, like you're not. So don't. Right. And, and with this, if it came across my desk today, I'd be like, you can't, you can't remake it. They did it beautifully and there's no point um so but yeah if it hadn't been made i would have i would have loved to have made this to have made this movie but i I, I never i never will complete the set kind (laughs) of yeah um but it would it would have been it would have been high on my list that i I would have gone to to them and asked about but guaranteed if you had your choice would it have been this first or gerald's game first probably gerald's game um I, I just because I, I encountered it sooner in my life on right. the page. And, and so that that one, the challenge of the movie making, I, I think I'd feel like if I had if I had gotten through Gerald's game, I would know better how to approach this. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I, I, I probably would have still wanted to do Gerald first, but um, it would have been neat too to get in touch with Steve and just say, what what was the third thing? <laughs> and if 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 in this alternate universe I was doing Gerald's game and Dolores Claiborne, I'd want to go to him and be like, "Can you just write an outline for the third thing so we can just do all three? Like, can we just <laughs> can we just fulfill that idea you had, um, whatever that third one is?" And and if he did say it was the Tommy Knockers, and I'd be like, "Ah, oh, shit!" Well, <laughs> I'll strap myself to the mast. I'm, I'm I, I go where Steve goes. So, yeah. <laughs> You're taking that that train <laughs> all the way to its conclusion. Final yep. stuff only. Thanks so much for coming back. Uh, we've missed you around here. Uh, yes. Sounds like you're still kicking ass. Uh, in you know, in order to keep the show going by providing us with more and more and more Stephen <laughs> King adaptations. So, <laughs> so you're doing your part, and I really appreciate it. Um, just tell Frank Darabont he needs to get back into the game, so we have even more stuff to talk about. Yeah, where is that guy? I don't understand. Uh, he's retired, man. He's retired. Yeah, he's I actually got. I got in touch with him and you know, it's been a, it's been a minute. We were in touch a long for a long time back in the day. And, uh, uh, but I did that, uh, oral history of the mist piece for, um, uh, for slash film at the end of last year and finally got back in touch. And he's, I think he's living up in Monterey and just going, yep. Uh, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not, I'm just, he's happy to not to be in the circus. You can definitely tell the storyteller is still there and wants to be there, but I think he's just totally done with, with the uh, studio politics. So breaks my heart, you know, he's, 
such an amazing, amazing storyteller. And I, I know just from what I've, I've read, I know he had just a horrible time on, on the TV show, but. Oh yeah. Um, no, the walking dead kind of, kind of broke him. I'm like, he ultimately yeah. won his lawsuits and whatnot, but you can, you can financially come out on top, but like his creatively, the ideas he had for that show and, you know, uh, just the amount of bullshit he had to put up with before he, you know, he got fired. It's like, I get it. And then he spends, you know, 10 years, you know, in the courts. It's like, yeah. I, you know, I, I get it. I wish it wasn't the case, but you know, I get not wanting to deal with that. I get it too. And it, the industry, I, I wish I was around and making movies when Dolores Claiborne was made, when Darabont was kind of at the peak of his powers, you know, like I, 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 I hear stories of what it was like compared to now. Yeah. And I, I, and I had this feeling talking to John Carpenter too, where it was just like, and he was miserable then, you <laughs> right. know, um, <laughs> but he looks at it now and he's like, no fucking thank you. You know, it's, mm, it's yeah. very, the industry's changed so much and everyone's trying to hold on by their fingernails and figure out how to stay relevant and tell good stories in this marketplace with these studios and this craziness and and with an audience that's changed so much like i i get it and i i wish i wish frank darabont would come back and make a million more movies because i want to see so much more of what goes on in his head but i i also i do not begrudge him one bit of the peace that i'm sure he's found not having to deal with it yeah 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 for sure well, thank you so much note. for, uh, yeah. yeah, to the picket well, lines. Yeah. Well, we're, we're so happy that you came back. Uh, please extend an invitation to Kate. We'd also love to talk to her if she's, oh, of course I'll, I'll let her know. She's, uh, she loves you guys, as you know, and I'm sure she'd love to come back and chat. Yeah. It's but been she has to watch the Morse Claiborne again, whether or not she does it on the show, <laughs> yeah. she has to watch it before she can come back. I, I know. I, her, I, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, I believe on her next appearance we get to pick the the title wasn't that oh, how it check out that's fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah we need to get oh uh, what are you gonna do can i well, be part I of think... this conversation <laughs> holy shit yeah what what's you you got any suggestions because i have so many driver the most fucking crazy yeah <laughs> i know i mean there's so many ways we could go you could be like your episode is you have to watch maximum overdrive twice you know <laughs> that could be really fun um well see that's why i'd go trucks Trucks is the great, worst, yeah. worst version of Maximum Overdrive. Um, you should just make her watch Cell. Oh, like something we that just, just did that one though. Oh yeah, that's right. Oof. Uh, yeah, that one. That one, is one just rough. hurts. Yeah. Dolan's um, Cadillac. It is. Oh man, I always forget that existed. I've got. <laughs> we've shit, we've actually shit. got someone on the books for Dolan's Cadillac right now. <laughs> uh, Isn't that so what's Bentley? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Christian, Christian Slater. Christian Slater. Slater. Yeah. yeah, it is. It, it is terrible. The movie is terrible. Oh, well, ta- how about Kate can be the one and only person who we will ever allow to talk about at pupil on this oh show. Oh my god! <laughs> someone, someone pitched that finally, and I had to be like, no. <laughs> like, it's, fucking... I mean, what is there to say? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's there's so much to say. There's yeah. so much to say. That's the problem. I know. Yeah. A total minefield of a conversation that I want no part of. Like, no kidding. I'll be, I'll be happy yeah. to. I've never seen it, but 
were I to see it, I'll be happy to talk to you about it in private. But I'm, I'm not fucking <laughs> stepping around that. It's just, yeah, dangerous, dangerous territory. Yeah, yeah. We, we know we know Wampler just adores Brian Singer and defends everything he does. Yeah, of course. I don't want to get in I'm trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is that is your internet personality. That's why <laughs> well, you, you know, had, that's why you, you know how much I love Brian Singer queen. as your avatar on Twitter. You know mm. how much I love that Queen uh, biopic that he made. It was just flawless. <laughs> yes. had uh, no he only he only made a, a certain percentage of it, from what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, he just very left. true. Yeah, very true. Um, yeah. Awesome. But yeah, it's that movie. I I remember seeing that in the theaters, and just I couldn't talk about it then. It was just kind of like what what is it good no app people it's no it's it's um i don't get it i just don't get it it's not hmm. i can't i it's not for me to say <laughs> you don't want to know that bullshit either yeah. you don't want I, to know I that just, beef. yeah it's i don't it's, get it yeah. Well, yeah the only time that we've we've ever really covered it on the show is when we had will wheaton on and we were doing the entirety of different seasons sure and uh and the the only point that i'll make is that it's you know, it's really hard to watch that movie right now um, or not right now, but it's really hard to watch that movie knowing the bullshit around it, because then suddenly all the lingering, lovingly shot Brad Renfro yeah. shirtless scenes and stuff, it, it you know, it, it just takes it into a super yeah. creepy area. And it's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is all the kind of shit that we'd be talking about, which is why Kate would be perfect to come on. We're going to make Kate do this. <laughs> oh, I think she would, she would run that. through that minefield just, <laughs> just Taking doing notice. cartwheels. Yeah. She would have, <laughs> she would have a blast. Yeah. Uh, it's, I hear you. It's, it's really, I, I can't, I can't watch that movie again. I, I couldn't. Nah. I don't know how to. Yeah. I just don't have any fucking interest. I didn't have any yeah. interest when it came out, and I certainly don't now. It's like, it's, you know. It, and like the story, the the short story is deeply challenging material anyway. Right. Like it's just the movies putting this incredibly challenging material through a prism that's just deeply wrong and and really hard to reconcile. And like yep. I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know how I could sit down and watch it to be honest. Well, well, we'll but, only yeah. talk to her about the unmade app pupil with Nicole Williamson and Ricky Schroeder, the the one that shot for like. <laughs> For like four weeks or something, and then they got canceled halfway through production. Yeah. Oh man, it's uh, we, we got to talk sometime because I'm always like with different seasons. I'm like, there's only one story that no one's ever done, and I I kick it around every year. It's it's a fun like late night party conversation of how do you do the breathing method, right? And uh, God, it's fun. We have it like Kate and I will kick it around, and I, whenever <laughs> I I have these fun talks with king fans it's like we can go an hour on what's your breathing method look like like what's that movie look like for you and it's mm. really fucking fascinating i would I feel be like derrickson was gonna do that at one point he was um eli roth was gonna do it at one point which i'm like oh for fuck's sake no but i this is the thing about that story i want to know everything there is to know about the the derrickson version and the eli roth version <laughs> yeah. i have my version I'd want to just bring on like, let's get Jordan Peele over here to tell us what the Jordan Peele version of the breathing method would be. Like, <laughs> right. let's get Ari Aster over here. I want to hear Ari Aster's version of the breathing method. And then, mm. like, I just think, I just think it's such a fascinating Rorschach test for filmmakers of just like, here's the deal. Here's the IP. You have creative freedom. 
and you have an <laughs> unlimited budget, but you have to deliver the movie by next spring. You know, you've got to cast it right now. You got to shoot by the winter. You have to make the film. You don't have a choice. What is the breathing method? And you, you have to do your best. Like you can't, you can't producers your way out of this, you know? Um, And I, I find those discussions to be riveting because there are so many elements of that story that are fascinating. Like the society of storytellers and stuff where I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Um, And then, yeah, it's, it's just like, what is the movie? I, I, I would pitch that to you guys because I know you're looking actively for suggestions for, for episodes from, <laughs> from, uh, from other people. Uh, you should totally do this weird breathing method round table. I think it would be ridiculous. Well, we know what the next banger and bangor is going to be about now. It'll be the breathing <laughs> method round table with you, Jordan Peel, because we'll definitely pull that off. Oh, that'd mm-hmm. be easy. Ari Aster. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. That'd be Scott People, per, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't drive across the country? <laughs> who wouldn't pay hundreds of dollars? <laughs> who wouldn't pay hundreds of dollars to see, to go, the to see this conversation? Yeah. Half a dozen times, <laughs> slightly different ways. But a bunch of people who are just kind of like, I guess this is what I would do, maybe. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, like who wouldn't? But what, what a wonderful yeah. plan. Um, then we'll follow it up with a, a screening and a live commentary about pupil with uh, with <laughs> and Kate. So. Fuck. There you go. There, there's our weekend. We got it, boys. Yep. Oh, man. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you again so much. We, we, uh, thanks, again, my friends. We, again, we've missed you around here, uh, but I'm I'm glad that we're missing you for a reason because you are in a, you're, you're going to make some really fun stuff for us, and I can't wait wait to see Indeed. how all that develops once uh, the AMPTP pulls their heads out their asses and starts, uh, you know, getting letting everybody get back to work. Here, 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 here. Many thanks to Mike Flanagan for joining us yet again. It's been too long. We, yeah. we love Mike around these parts, and uh, that episode you just listened to is a big reason why. Uh, that dude's just, I don't know, smart. You know, yes. He knows what he's talking about. He knows his king shit inside and out. Uh, very fun dude to talk to. Um, you know, I, uh, Always I, I'm very glad. Yeah, I'm very glad he came in. And I'm also glad that he was pretty upfront with the uh, Dark Tower and Life of Chuck stuff. He didn't have to be. That mm-hmm. up front, we got a little couple of pieces in there that I'm sure we'll, you'll see pop up on the on our favorite uh, news aggregator uh, next in the next day or two. Yeah, yeah, maybe, perhaps. It's been a minute since we recorded this one, so I'm forgetting exactly mm-hmm. what was said on the air. Um, but I'm going to agree with you blindly, yeah. and yes, I think that will happen. Yes, for sure. This is uh, this is where he announced that Harrison Ford is playing Roland. I don't know if you uh, oh, yes. if you remember that part. Yes, yes, a key part of the interview. I, I do recall. But but uh, only the young indie cameo Harrison Ford version, where he's got the big old beard and and the scarf. Right. So, right. No eye patch. So it's it's a it's a very different kind of Roland from from the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully it won't be uh, uh, that long before we hear from Mike again. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, what do we got going? Oh, I guess I'm I, I'm going to tell them what we have going on next week. Yes. Yes. In the main feed, we are getting around to an episode that I have been trying to get off the ground pretty much since we started doing the show. And I could never quite find the right person for uh, the particular task at hand. Uh, we are going to be talking about various, <laughs> various uh, Stephen King adaptations that are video games. So we're going to go back and talk about the Running Man game, uh, Stephen King's F-13, the Dark Half 
uh, point and click adventure game. And mm -hmm. what was the other one? There's another one we talk about. Lawnmower, Lawnmower Man. Man. Lawnmower yeah. Man. That's right. And to do this, <clears throat> we have brought in a uh, a gaming journalist of some renown. Uh, she, I don't know. I don't know how else to tease this guest, but she definitely knows her shit. Went through and played all of these games and then came uh, came onto the show to to discuss them with us, her, her findings and which of these things hold up, which do not. And um, yeah, it's a it's a really good episode. It's exactly what I wanted it to be. Uh, and I'm very glad we finally uh, got this one recorded. It's a slightly different kind of show. We break a little bit from our traditional um Format. Uh, format here but weirdly we hit a lot of the same beats it felt just like in every any other episode where you know we're talking about the adaptation process we're talking about our own personal histories with video games our favorite kind of games that kind of shit and uh all amongst a stephen king background so so uh, i hope you guys will join us for that uh, slight departure from the usual and but you'll realize it's actually not much of a departure at all it's the same same kind of shit Yes. Uh, that you listen to on a weekly basis. Um, so we didn't want the the Flanagan celebration to end with this episode that you just listened to this week. So we are carrying our Flanagan appreciation and examination into our bonus episode this Friday on our Patreon, where we bring in our friend and colleague, Mr. Russ Fisher, to discuss the life of Chuck kind of in depth. Um, a lot of this, of course, is going to be focused around uh, kind of guessing maybe what Mike's going to be doing with the adaptation, talking about what we want to see, what we don't want to see, but mostly it's us kind of digging into Stephen King's novella, The Life of Chuck, in detail and uh, kind of breaking down, you know, why the story is uh, so remarkable. And so uh, that'll be a really fun one. If you want to listen to that one, and you damn well should, you should head on over to patreon.com slash thekingcast. And uh, sign up at the, either at our six or ten dollar tier. That'll get you that bonus episode. Uh, and it's a it's a rollicking one. I can say that we literally just recorded it right before yes. jumping on for this. So it's it's very fresh. I had a great time with it. And um, uh, yeah, it takes us to some strange places. The life of Chuck. <laughs> just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Talk of... about some feet and some like. Uh, yeah, there's a weird amount know, of feet talk. Yeah, a weird amount of feet talk and then off the grid living talk. So so if uh, if either of those sound at all interesting to you uh, or if you are indeed a contributor to proud member of or a writer for wiki feet, then you will love this. This uh, episode. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very true. Well, I think uh, I think that about does it. Doesn't yeah. It? All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see y'all next week for some video game and Stephen King talk. Adios, folks. Bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted and created by Eric Vespi. That's me. And Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. 